My name is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. Today, I have a wealth of information for you, all wrapped up in a fabulous physician named Dr. Dave Stukas. You may have heard of him if you have ever set foot on food allergy social media. He is a board-certified allergist and immunologist, as well as board-certified in pediatrics. He works at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, so all you folks in Ohio are super lucky, and also the author of Allergies and Adolescence, Transitioning Towards Independent Living, which anyone who has listened to the podcast before knows is a bit of a favorite topic of mine. Dr. Dave, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So you are quite the medical family. Your wife is an emergency physician also at the same hospital, which might be kind of fun. Why did you decide to go into medicine originally? What was your kind of aha, I have to medically help people moment? Uh, I fell in love with science. Um, I I thought I was going to be a civil engineer in high school. I I loved math and it was really easy for me. And then I kind of got bored a little bit. Uh, And then my friends were into science. And so I actually just took a leap of faith and enrolled as an undergraduate as a molecular biology major, uh, which is quite fitting now. I didn't I didn't realize at the time. And I also had a minor in psychology, which really comes into play with what I do now. No doubt. Um, Yeah. And I I knew right away, I just wanted to um, help people and use that knowledge of science to just kind of relate to people. But I knew it was pediatrics all along. So I went into medical school knowing I was going to go into pediatrics. And I said, all right, every, every, elective rotation that I take along the way, whether it's surgery or geriatrics, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll go all in and see if they can sway me. And none of them did. I just, I felt, I just loved everything I did when, when working with kids. And it's because I treat kids of all ages from infants through the age mm-hmm. of 21. And I mean, it's the same condition, whether it's food allergy or eczema or asthma, but it has such a varied sort of uh, presentation in young children as opposed to adolescents who have their own challenges. And I'm not only just treating children, but I'm also communicating with parents. So it really ties in just my love of understanding the immune system uh, and communicating with, with patients and families so that they can hopefully better understand and, and live with their own conditions. So pediatrics, definitely. Why allergies and asthma? I thought I was going to be a cardiologist. And that was my goal when I uh, interviewed for residency programs. I'm sure your listeners are aware. So you go through four years of medical school and then, you know, three years of residency where I learned how to be a pediatrician. So you're exposed to everything. And it was second month of my intern year. And I'm reading the heart rhythm telemetry strips at two o'clock in the morning. And I said, (laughs) I don't love this. This is not, this is not what I want to do. (laughs) This is work, not passion. Yeah. Yeah. Which is now my advice to all, everybody pursuing medicine, whatever you find yourself loving at two o'clock in the morning, you should probably do that for the rest of your life. Um, and then shortly thereafter, yeah, in, in that autumn, we started admitting children with asthma, uh, which is the leading uh, cause of admission um, admissions every autumn uh, and spring at pediatric hospitals across the world. And I just fell in love with, you know, this one condition, and it has such a, a varied heterogeneous presentation among all different ages. And I kept saying, this is manageable. Why do these kids keep ending up in the emergency room and hospital? And um, I fell in love with all those nuances. And I decided you can either pursue allergy immunology, which is, oh, I can learn more about the immune system and people with immune deficiency and food allergies, et cetera, et cetera. Or I can go into pulmonology. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't love managing ventilators and uh, cystic fibrosis and things. Those are interesting to me, but it's not my passion. And then that's what chose, that's what made me choose allergy and immunology. Nice. So you have made quite a social media following in working with asthma and allergy. You have a thing for dispelling myths and misconceptions. 
that's the whole reason I joined social media. Uh, I'd done some research and work in my academic career, um, as, you know, trying to understand these misconceptions. And a lot of it, it was just, why am I getting referrals for this question when I know as an allergist, this isn't real. Um, this, is, this isn't even a thing. Why are our primary like care what? doctors? Well, uh, you know, concern for, uh, you know, people getting the flu shot when they have egg allergy. Um, we used to think that was the thing, but that was mm -hmm. dispelled. It was eight years ago. Um, so for the last almost decade, we've known it's very safe for anybody with egg allergy to get the flu shot. I still get referrals for that. Yeah. Um, so I started. They still know, ask you that question when you fill out the forms to get vaccines, by the way. Yes, I know. They do it at my hospital. And uh, believe me, there have been emails about that. <laughs> no doubt. Ones. Yeah. Um, so, Same thing you know, I would think with MRI contrast and a shellfish allergy. It's not a thing I anymore. Exactly. It was never a thing. It was never a thing. So then I started like <laughs> investigating, like, why was this ever a thing? And it's because we created it out of thin air, out of- out, I've had know, MRI yeah. techs not give me contrast when it's ordered because I have a shellfish allergy. Oh yeah. It, it, this, this actually changes care. Um, it changes the care that people receive because people ask a question that doesn't need to be asked in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, well, I fell, in, I fell in love with those misconceptions. Like, why am I, why am I hearing these things? Why are you know, parents worried about um, strawberry allergy in their baby when strawberry is a very unlikely cause of allergy? Um, so I, I looked at some of the origins of these, origins of these and I did some research, I did some presentations at some of our you know, society meetings and things like that. And then this is 2013, my brother-in-law said, you know, Dave, you should probably join Twitter. And I said, uh, what the hell is Twitter? <laughs> I had no social media presence at all. And then I, I, I looked at that platform and I said, wow, this, this might be something I could do. And then, so that's where at Allergy Kids Dog was born. And then I joined Instagram in 2018. So I'm on both of those platforms now. Never nice. once have I had a, have, had, a, have I had a Facebook account and I don't regret that. <laughs> I'm very good at Facebook. I'm very not good at Twitter. Uh, it's I can't quite figure out how to like read the thread. You know, it all seems to kind of show up in a funny order to me. Yeah, it's, um, you know, but actually I did a, like a, a TED talk oh, a few years ago at our hospital, um, which is great. I got professional coaching on how to do this. So I think the title was how Twitter made me better doctor. And I realized because uh, I was communicating pretty complex medical information in 280 characters, uh, which taught me how to communicate to patients in front of me. Uh, yeah. You know, you come to see me, there's a wealth of information you're getting, but you're going to forget most of it. So mm -hmm. I learned how to not to bury the lead, how to cut to the chase and how to summarize things in a very concise way. I don't dumb it down, but I, I explain it in a way that yeah. hopefully Net makes sense out. to people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a gift to be able to explain things in a relatively concise and layman's terms without leaving out the important information. Well, according to my Twitter feed, I think I have you know, 30,000 tweets of practice. So <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> took, so took a lot to get there. Yeah. Fun fact. When I was starting Certistar, you were my very, very, very first food allergy, social media find and follow. That is unbelievable and flattering. And please don't tell me the search terms you put in. I'm sure it was something like idiot doctor. And then I popped up or something like that. Fabulous but. source of food allergy information. And there you were. Oh, wow. I have no idea what I searched for, but I know that I found you and I think that your Twitter account is awesome. I too like to dispel myths. So you mentioned, you know, strawberries and, you know, flu shot. What are some other common misconceptions that people have around food allergies and or asthma? I think the word allergy just causes confusion. Uh, mm -hmm. I, and you know what I do now, Shandy, is I, 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 so now all I do is I focus on food allergy. We opened a food allergy center at Nationwide Children's Hospital seven months mm -hmm. ago. So I shifted from asthma. I started a complex asthma clinic a decade ago. And the reason for my shift in interest is because I think we're with food allergy where we were with asthma a decade ago. And I think 
we're on the cusp of really uh, taking a very personalized approach to food allergy. And we're seeing that with better identifying, you know, there are some people out there that truly do have mild food allergy. You know, me saying that 10 years ago was heresy. I would be, you know, you'd, you know I'd lose my license for saying such a thing, but that's true. Um, now we need to get better at figuring that out. But, you know, as far as management is, in, is involved, it is not one size fits all, it's truly individualized. So that's all I do now is just food allergy. And I've learned that a lot of the referrals I get are for some pretty common reasons. A lot of times chronic conditions, whether it's chronic rashes that people can't identify the cause or gastrointestinal complaints or things like that. So I often will, actually I start every visit with, I'm so glad you're here today. Um, I love helping families clarify important um, diagnoses because the diagnosis matters as it impacts everything in regards to risk for reactions and avoidance and things like that. And every single family seems to nod and get it. And then I'll often lead into, before we go any further, if it's okay, I have an idea of why you're here and I have a lot of questions I need to ask of you, but I'd like to just say a few things and I'd like to define these terms for you. And I say, here's what a food allergy is. A food allergy is a reproducible um, set of symptoms that should occur every single time you eat the food. So if you're concerned about milk allergy, you should not be able to eat cheese or ice cream or yogurt. Uh, it's very different than just, I drink a glass of milk and I get an upset stomach. The symptoms often occur very rapidly uh, and they will comprise you know, hives, itching, rashes, swelling, vomiting, or anaphylaxis. If you're eating a food without having reproducible symptoms, you're simply not allergic to that food. And then I'll describe intolerance. Intolerance is difficulty digesting the food, most common of being lactose. So you eat things with lactose in them, commonly found in, in dairy, and it passes through the gastrointestinal tract, undigested, causes bloating, camping, diarrhea, things like that. And then I'll, 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 then I'll discuss this term called food sensitivity, which frankly is, is a marketing term. There's no you know, consensus medical definition that says this is what food sensitivity is. There are 70,000 ICD-10 codes that we can use to diagnose any condition, including, you ready for this, Shandy? Sucked into the engine of an airplane left wing unintentional. That's an ICD-10 oh. code. That's true. Is there a right wing uh, one also, or do left wings do all of the? No, damage? there's there's both wings, and it's also <laughs> intentional versus unintentional. But there's no food sensitivity. That's correct. You know, I uh, throw things at my TV every time the Everly Well commercials come in. Come on. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, so, Everly Well. That's how I feel. Uh, but so I'm sorry. Long answer to your original question. Mm -hmm. So I lead with those definitions because, as um, you know, I'm, some of your listeners may be saying, "Oh, that kind of makes sense." At least I hope they do. Um, there's common misconceptions about what allergy is. Uh, so when you have chronic symptoms and you can't identify the cause, it's very unlikely that that's due to an allergy. Allergy is cause and effect. I'm exposed to something, it causes these symptoms. I'm not exposed, I don't have those symptoms. So I wanna go back to a sentence that you said because way back at the beginning of that, which I think is a fabulous introduction to you know allergies versus intolerances versus the bad word, <laughs> sensitivities don't exist. Uh, you said people have mild food allergies. I've always understood, and this, I want you to correct me and anybody who's listening. I've always understood food allergies are like a light switch and your reactions might be mild so far. Right. So you're either allergic or you're not. So that's absolutely true. Um, but we switch. also, okay. yes, right. Right. Yeah, right. So that I agree 100%, but we also know that, you know, we see this with the food challenges that we do. There are some kids that they can eat a ton of that food and no matter what, they're just going to get hives. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, this is a really controversial topic and we're just on the cusp of better understanding this. This really does take a very nuanced conversation with somebody's personal allergist to figure this out. Sure. Um, but you know, it, it's very different than some of the campaigns we saw just a few years ago, such as, you know, uh, trace amounts can kill you. Um, wow. That's really scary. Uh, that's a scary message to send to people. And I can tell Which you that can also be true though. 
It can be true, right? But if we treat 100% of people with food allergies that they're ticking time bombs, and if there's invisible food protein on their fork that they're going to die, wow, that's a huge disservice to a lot of folks, and that really impacts their quality of life in a negative way. Yeah. So we were talking about this a little bit before we started the official show, the quality of life impact based on the information that someone receives. How, A, where can we find, where can listeners find the right set of information? What's the best resource in your opinion? And B, how can we collectively as a community do a better job of making sure that, um, you know, the, the medical side of the food allergy community is really communicating the, the most accurate, up-to-date, recent information. Mm-hmm. I, I think we always start with vetted resources like the professional organizations, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. There's wonderful advocacy organizations. There's uh, FAIR. There's Kids with Food Allergies. There's the um, there's AFA. There's Allergy and Asthma Network. There's great vetted advocacy and professional organizations. So I say start with them. Be wary of anybody who is uh, giving you information, but they're also selling you something because we see that a lot in our community as well, uh, whether it's products, services, or, or stuff like that. Um, so that should always come with sort of a bit of a red flag and just be cautious because they may be leading you up into a bit of a corner. And then how do we do better? Well, you know, it's interesting, Shane. I just gave a talk to our, our fellows in training and our, our group here at Nationwide Children's. Uh, this was uh, two weeks ago, and it's a brand new talk for me, and I titled it food allergy conversations I have now that I didn't have five years ago. I like it. And I spent 90 minutes uh, basically going through, and I didn't even cover all of it, all of the stuff now that I do now that I didn't do just a few years ago, because our understanding and the evidence surrounding food allergies has evolved dramatically over the last few years. So anything that you were told when, you know, four, you know, four five, six years ago, it's probably incorrect at this point, or at least um, we know more about it now. So so give me I, I a think, rundown of kind of the shocking changes, the things that you thought would never be true as they are today. Uh, well, for one thing, if you have a, a child with milk or egg allergy, we are promoting, you know, the inclusion of baked egg and baked milk in their diet on a regular basis. We often will do challenges in the office because about three quarters of kids with egg allergy can eat it when it's baked and about two thirds of milk can eat it when it's baked. But that can really help liberalize the diet. And those those kids are declaring themselves as more likely to outgrow a little bit sooner than their counterparts. I talk about precautionary labeling all the time because we know in the United States, if foods contain milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, or shellfish, they must clearly state contains these things. Right. But then there's all the other labels that say process oh my God, in the, the same facility, may contain shared equipment, and those aren't regulated. Those are meaningless. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily say it poses risk. There's only been a few studies that have pulled these off the shelves to look, and it's highly variable how much food protein is in there. But this goes back to the last concept. Those and are lawyer think, statements. I mean, well, right, right, exactly. But if you're avoiding all these things um, because of a perceived heightened risk, uh, it may not be necessary. So I talked to families about that because unless you are in that exquisitely sensitive group, which you know 95% of kids with peanut allergy aren't, um, but, then they I may mean, not even be at risk anyways. Even if you are in that group, the label existing doesn't mean anything and the label not existing doesn't mean anything. Exactly, exactly. Because there's no guidelines around what you should put in that you know, when you should put that label, anybody manufacturing anything in any circumstance can put that label on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, but this requires a conversation where I talk about risk. I talk about preferences and values and how much do you want to avoid all risk versus how much do you want to try to include these things in their diet? Is it a child who has one food allergy versus 10 food allergies? These all, all these different nuances matter. Mm -hmm. And then most importantly, Shani, one thing I do with every family now um, is 
we openly address all the psychosocial impacts of food allergy. We talk about anxiety. I ask mothers all the time because it's often the mother who brings the child to the visit. Mm-hmm. Who helps you? Who do you talk to? What do you do? How do you get re- re- you know, how do you relieve your stress? Who who helps you with the burden of trying to manage everything? And I talk about all the what if questions and I address those when I give a new diagnosis. I know that right now your child is 12 months old and you're fast forwarding to how they're going to go to school and can they graduate high school? Can they join the army? Let's just pump the brakes a little bit and let's try to take this one day yes, at a time yes, and give those skills. Well, let's see how things go. Maybe they outgrow it. <laughs> That's right. Now that I, I did a great episode with um, Hillary Toll Carter, who talks a lot about these issues, right? As a mom with food allergies and going through the food challenges and how that affects the family. And I don't think it's talked about enough, right? I mean, even, even my kids, so they don't have any food allergies, but it, my food allergies affect their anxiety and mental health, right? Because yeah. they're the ones who might have to one day save my life, right? No, it's true. And then back to your your point before of not all allergists are necessarily equipped with the same up-to-date information or practice mm-hmm. style. And, you know, some it, information sort of flows in different speeds at different places. All I do all day, every day is, is food allergy. So I, I see the nuances. And if you think of everybody presenting with a bell-shaped curve, I'm going to see those outliers and recognize those immediately yeah. and know how to approach those. And it's just from volume and it's just all I, all I read about and study and things like that. So it's a little bit of a different approach than somebody who's seeing 40 patients a day. And that every time you walk in an exam room, it might be allergic rhinitis versus eczema versus drug allergy, immune deficiency, asthma, food allergy. It's just a different way of sort of navigating things. And yet but, we kind of use the same words to describe all of them. It's kind of interesting. Right, right. So that's an important distinction for your listeners to understand, not that one's better or worse. It's just, it is what it is. Um, you know, you come to me for immune deficiency. Uh, I am not going to help you, <laughs> even though I'm a board certified allergist immunologist. That is, I'm years behind that. I have not stayed up to date with any of that. Um, but it also speaks to, for anybody out there who feels that they're qualified to diagnose food allergy, they absolutely better back that up with education, evidence-based information about risk uh, and prognosis and help those families uh, with those self-management skills. Because if you don't give that information and you just hand them a piece of paper and says, this paper says you're allergic to X, Y, and Z, have a nice life, you are harming that family. And I will, I will die on that, on that, on that stool. Cause that's true. I see it Could every day. Could not agree with you more. There's a, there's a TikTok where it starts out there. People stitch with it uh, where it starts. What's the hill that you're willing to die on a thousand mm. percent of the time. Sounds like this is yours. Oh, I found it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about, let, let's dig into that a little bit. You know, the, the testing leads to a list of foods that have some kind of positive response to that food what's the right answer? How do you find the right answer as opposed to just hand off that piece of paper and then don't eat these. Bye. Yeah. Well, it starts with the history. Um, So what actually happens when you eat the food? If you have a history that's pretty consistent with IgE mediated allergy, rapid onset within minutes, rarely longer than two hours later, hive swelling, you know, itching, rash, vomiting, and it's a food that's a known cause of IgE food allergy. Um, Then you have my undivided attention. Okay. You, you came in with a good story. Let's talk about testing. So we have skin testing we can do in the office. We have blood testing where we can measure levels of allergy antibody, or we have food challenges. Um, our skin and blood tests are pretty lousy. They're, they can't predict future reactions. They're not good screening tests because they have tons of false positive results. The size of the negatives. test and false negatives, the, the size of the test does, tells us nothing about the severity of future reactions, but we shouldn't be doing the test at all unless you have a history that's good for that. You can come in and say, Dave, listen, every time I eat dairy products, I get upset stomach. Uh, you know, Two days later, I believe you 100%. I'm just not worried that that's due to an IgE food allergy. So our IgE tests are gonna be useless in your evaluation. And IgE is basically what indicates a potential anaphylaxis. 
Right. And so IgE is yes. associated with a type one hypersensitivity response. And that's the allergy antibody that can unleash those allergy cells and cause all the havoc that can occur with anaphylaxis. And then there's a million other types of what people categorize as food allergic diseases, but they're not the same thing as an anaphylactic allergy. Right. So not to minimize them. I mean, you know, you, you get sick and it sucks, but. Right. And, but that's an important distinction because mm -hmm. those with IgE allergy need to make sure that they have epinephrine available. They need to, you know, do a very good job of reading labels and communicating with food handlers. Others with other types of allergies need to communicate and avoid eating their food as well. But you're right. Uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, you know, not feeling well for a few hours is very different than potential for anaphylaxis. So both need to avoid, but understanding that important distinction of risk is but very important. But their risk tolerance is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So tell me about some of the stumbling blocks that you run into in, in treatment of patients. We were, again, we were talking about this a little bit before, you know, for me, I've got eosinophilic esophagitis, eosinophilic asthma, food allergies, asthma. Well, I mean, I mentioned asthma and, and environmental allergies. There's a wide variety of things out there now that have changed in the last, however many years treatment wise, but it's hard to get some of them when you have insurance that doesn't like to cover them. What mm -hmm. are the things that kind of really great on you from a treatment of patient's perspective where you feel like you could improve quality of life and there's just a roadblock in front of you to do it. It starts with access. Not everybody has the same access to specialists, uh, especially those who live in rural areas or, or other countries. Um, so if you can't even get to see a specialist for six months to two years, that's a real problem. And uh, nobody has been able to answer the question for me of why in the year 2021, in the middle of a global pandemic, why am I not licensed in all 50 states to see patients through telemedicine? Um, I mean, come on, what, we had all these temporary restrictions removed early in the pandemic and they went right back to where they were before. That's ridiculous. There's no, there's no point. Is there even um, a federal licensing board to do that? No, they're working on it. So there's some states that have joined together in a pact um, to try to, you know, share like licenses and, kind and things of like that. Right, right. But yeah, I get people contacting me all the time that ask me to do a telemedicine visit, but I can't. I'm not licensed in their state. So I just, I can't give you advice. It, it's, it's really hard. So we need to fix the access issue at some point. Um, and then it's, you know, the insurance providers. And one thing that I've noticed, this is really just, just recent, but in the last year or two, I have families that call me and they are so distraught because they get this huge bill from a visit with me. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're asking me, why did you charge me for all this? And on my end, I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm doing the exact same thing I've always done on my end end in regards to the codes that I use and, and the tests that we do and things like that. But the insurance coverage for these things is so variable now, and it's changing all the time. I can see three patients in a row, all the exact same things, and I, I code everything the right way and bill for it the right way. They can all get very different bills from their insurance company. Uh, and that is leading to some significant sort of um, uh, people aren't happy with the care that they're getting. Uh, for me, it, it, it's hard because they think it's my fault, but it's really not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's interesting, we, right? Like the, the new drugs that are yeah. allegedly wonder drugs, I can't tell you because I can't get any of them. Yeah. I can't get, but all the drugs that don't work as well, they'll cover all day long. I can get as many allergy tests as I want to, which tell me basically nothing. And it's frustrating. Like I can't get fixed. Yeah, no, you're right. That was, that was a, my big, and then it's the medications, right? So that this is, I can have patients on the same exact treatment for years. And then every six to 12 months, their insurance company says, nah, it's not on our formula anymore. You have to switch it up. Yeah. And then that just requires all of our staff to spend all day, every day fighting for this with prior authorizations, which we do and will gladly do. But why is it necessary? Why are we doing this? Yeah. Um, it, it's just, I, you know, the whole system, I think, needs to be blown up on in many ways.
It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, the, and, and the costs of the drugs are a whole other thing. I mean, I understand the cost of the research, but in other countries, they're so, you know, more accessible, so more accessible, that made no sense. Yeah, but absolutely. It's uh, it's crazy town. So so one more question on, on doctors, if you will. How do, fam- so let's say a family thinks, gosh, I think my kid has a food allergy, right? Or a sensitivity, intolerance, whatever. Like somebody out there with no medical background, no background in anything like food eating problem, they think there's an issue. How do they best find the right allergist? in their area. Mm. There's two great resources on their websites or whatever. Yeah. They, hopefully they they have a board certification in allergy and immunology that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's issues with the board certifying process and we pay thousands of dollars to have this done and all this other stuff, but it matters because that means that that person has gone through the necessary training to, you know, understand very complex issues surrounding the, the immune system. And then they passed an exam that shows that they're at least um, somewhat competent in these areas, <laughs> which is very different than uh, a non-physician per just hanging a shingle that says I specialize in allergies. And we see this with, you know, chiropractors and people practicing homeopathy and naturopathy and things like that. They say, I specialize in allergies. That's a fundamentally different way of, of really understanding these conditions. So it, it's, it's different levels of care. Um, and so you start with that. I say, go to the find an allergist search engine on both the American Academy and the American College of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology websites. Um, and they will give you a listing of all the board certified allergists in your area. And uh, hopefully, can you, you can find like them. specializes in food allergies, stuff like that on there? Not on those websites, but then they'll direct you to that person's website. And then uh, all of us should have up to date, you know, information on our websites in, in this day and age. Yes, no doubt. I find that people go to whoever it is that kind of shows up closest to them. And then they, that person may or may not really specialize in food. And then you end up with the list, right? Avoid these, bye. Mm-hmm. And that's no good. Yeah. And this goes both ways. So I, I said this before about myself with primary immune deficiency. I am a pediatric allergist. And at this point in my career, food allergy allergist. Did I, I just coined that. I'm a food, food allergy, allergy allergist. allergist. I like it. Um, I'm or food no. allergist. We could go. <laughs> there you go. Can I address concerns about asthma and atopic dermatitis and allergic rhinitis? Absolutely. I can, I can do all those things. If you're an adult who has, you know, complex allergic conditions, I'm not, I haven't treated an adult in 15 years. Like, <laughs> you don't want to see me. I'm not going to help you. I may harm you. (laughs) (laughs) Know know your strengths, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so tell me about your book. I've had several, um, you know, really, really, really confident, well-spoken, well-educated young people on the podcast. And I always ask them, how did your parents kind of make you so confident and independent and feel comfortable going out into the world with your food allergic conditions? You literally wrote the book on the topic. So tell me about that. And it seems like it's maybe a little bit more geared towards healthcare professionals, but could families and, and you know students who are coming up through their food allergy journey also find good information in there? Um, yes, thank you for asking. So the, the topic of transitioning adolescents with allergic conditions towards independent living um, has, has been poorly addressed and recognized in the past. Uh, there are great sort of transition uh, pieces in place for those with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, uh, congenital heart disease, you know, things like that. But there was a big gap there. So this has always been an interest of mine. And actually, I gave a, a plenary presentation at the 2016 American College of Allergy Asthma and Immunology meeting on this topic. And in the audience was a representative from Springer Publishing. 
And she came up to me after the talk and said, that's a really interesting topic. I've never heard anybody talk about this before. Would you like to write a textbook? And I said, what's that now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was just this, this, you know, right place, right time, addressing the right topic sort of thing. Um, so we wrote it for anybody. Uh, there's, I think we have, I think 14 different authors in different chapters. So it is technically a textbook, uh, which is why it's a little higher cost, unfortunately, but it's written for healthcare professionals. It's written for families. You can buy chapter by chapter online through Springer. Oh, cool. um, and we really go through specifics in regards to just the overall what happens to adolescents from a cognitive development standpoint because they inherently take more risks uh, for everybody listening right now think about when you were a teenager uh, we took a lot of risks we you know yeah. tried new things to see what what it was like uh, new experiences and we underwent significant changes in our in our bodies and minds and we also had a poor perception of sort of long-term consequences which is a real problem when you have you know pretty bad asthma and you're supposed to take your inhaler twice a day and then you go off to college and then you know you get involved in various stuff and it may be hard for you to appreciate why that's important to maintain. And then we broke down into specific topics, including asthma, atopic dermatitis or eczema, food allergies, environmental allergies, immune deficiency, things like that. So uh, I hope it's a good resource for people. Uh, we certainly enjoy putting it together. And uh, really, you know, it, 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 I think it addresses a, an area of need. So what along the, the spectrum of the time that you have been a physician uh, focusing in food allergies, what's your kind of favorite story of how you've helped a kid really oh. regain kind of confidence or quality of life or, you know, face that fear head on and become more independent. Here's the story I tell when I, when I, I I'm, I'm very fortunate to be asked to give presentations to my colleagues. Um, so I, I often am providing education to other allergists. And when I talk about the topic of oral food challenges for infants and toddlers, I tell this story. This is a family that reached out to me on social media um, and I took it offline. You always have to take it offline. I can't give any individual individualized. They said, we need your help. So their son was um, five years old or six years old, had been diagnosed with peanut allergy as an infant from very mild hives on their face after eating it, had never eaten it since. Repeat testing was sort of wishy-washy, mildly elevated. They'd been seen by, I don't know, four or five other allergists, some of which wanted to desensitize to a hundred different foods and all kinds of stuff. And I said, that doesn't sound right. I said, why don't, why don't you just give them peanut? And they said, oh my gosh, no. Um, they were so scared because nobody had given them the right information. They didn't want to send him to kindergarten. He'd never been inside a grocery store because they felt that if they walked through the nut bins that he would have an anaphylactic reaction and die. They didn't let him play Little League, any of this stuff. But he'd never had an anaphylactic reaction. That's correct. And nobody, no other allergist was willing just to give him some and see what would happen in a very controlled setting. And I said, well, I'm happy to do that, but you live 10 hours away. And they said, we don't care, we'll drive. So they came to see me and I didn't do anything special. I didn't do any fancy tests or I just looked at the same piece of paper that everybody else was looking at. And I said, well, let's give small amounts in a very careful way and see what happens. And his mother was so nervous that she couldn't stay in the room. And she went downstairs to the coffee shop for three hours while she rocked back and forth, crying and praying. And then we called her and I said, okay, we're all done. You can come up. She said, where are you? Are you in the ICU in the emergency room? What, what happened? I said, no, we're done. He's fine. And she walked in the room shaking and she said, well, what happened? Did you have to give him epinephrine? And I said, no, we're done. She's like, what did he eat? And I showed her the empty candy wrappers of the Reese's Pieces and the Reese's Cups and, you know, all the peanut M&Ms and everything else. And he wasn't allergic. He wasn't allergic. And then ever since then that we stay in touch, actually, it's been a few years now. And they send me pictures. I got the first picture of the first time he we went trick-or-treating on Halloween, the first Thanksgiving dinner, his first day of kindergarten, field trip, first time at a baseball game. And they are now thriving. I didn't do anything magical, Shandy. All I did was say, I talked about risk and say, well, let's, let's do a very 
you know, careful oral food challenge, which is the most informative, you know, way to learn about food allergy that we have. And, you know, it's something we do 600 times a year at our institution. And, and we, we know the value in it and we have experience in doing it. And there are many other great places doing these as well. Yeah. I mean, if there was another test that really gave a diagnostic, it would be great to not have to do oral food challenges, but I really wish that more doctors would look at the results of an allergy test and go, which ones of these have you had what reactions to? Or not do the test in the first place unless you've actually had reactions. Or that, but like, it's just, it's so impactful. Every time somebody gets a food added to their list that they have to avoid, it mm -hmm. really changes your, your outlook, right? Oh yeah. And it's, it's, it's crazy what it does to your brain, you know, when you've got to avoid yet another food, I'll tell you what, I've had some mild reactions to foods that are not on my little list. And I just, I, I refuse to consider that I might be allergic to them because I just ah. can't handle the idea of, you know, having to avoid yet something else. It's so, it's such a big hit. Yeah. But Shani, don't you need permission from your doctor before you eat? So I say that facetiously because a lot of people say, well, I wouldn't even think about giving that to my child because I didn't get permission. And I, I say, what? We're, we're just feeding. We're, we're using food. It's mm -hmm. become so medicalized uh, of, yeah. about the act of eating and feeding babies. Um, right. It's kind of mind blowing. So we're doing our best to reverse that and try to remove that, that fear and provide good anticipatory guidance about what to expect. My least favorite allergy testing again, not a doctor on any of these topics, but the thing that kind of irks me the most is when doctors will test siblings of a food allergic kid. Mm. Just because, yeah. oh, all my kids yeah. are food allergic. Wait. <laughs> There's outstanding Any of the other kids had a reaction to anything? Yes, please don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, super interesting. All right, so tell everybody where they can connect with you online, just in case they don't already follow you on Twitter. Oh, yeah. How do they so find you? My cell phone number. <laughs> never mind. Uh, no, so I, I'd love for people to reach out. I, 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 I can never give individual medical advice, but I try to provide, you know, good evidence-based information or resources for folks. So at Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at AllergyKidsDoc. Um, so yeah, come take a look. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing information that you provide and, uh, you know, with a touch of humor here and there, which I appreciate. So it has come time for our favorite, and I cannot wait to hear what yours are little torture game I do to all of my guests, which is two truths and a lie. So in no particular order and without revealing which one's not true, give mm -hmm. us three facts about yourself, one of which is, you know, mildly less factual. <laughs> okay. Uh, fact number one, I have zero allergies, including foods, environmental allergens. I'm not even allergic to poison ivy. Kick-ass immune system right there. Fact number two, I have been to every NFL stadium to watch a live football game in my life. Fact number three, I do not know how to play any musical instruments whatsoever, including a recorder. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. And I know you guys can't see him, but those were all completely deadpan. Like there was absolutely <laughs> no emotion or clue in his face whatsoever, which was absolutely perfect. So Dr. Dave Stukas, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. What an informative conversation. You are an amazing resource. And I know that, you know, everybody who's listening is going to be driving to Ohio just to be able to see you because, you know, no telemedicine anywhere else. <laughs> thank you so much. This was great. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And for everybody listening, thank you so much for being here. As always, this has been the Shandyland Podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.